0: It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football.
1: And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about Week 6 of the 2015 Division Three football season, the podcast for October 12, 2015. So the uh, let's see, the top story of the week uh, is one that had people buzzing across Division three and, and maybe even a little bit in the general college football landscape. And that was, of course, the Titans of Wisconsin Oshkosh defeating Wisconsin Whitewater 10 to 7 and ending the Warhawks 36game winning streak. Whitewater losing. Yeah, that's not something that happens every day, or every week, or every season, actually. Of course, the last loss for the Warhawks was in 2012, and the last regular season loss by a sitting number one team in Division III is a little over three seasons ago, earlier that same season. They're just rare here in Division III, unlike uh, pretty much every other level of college football. But, uh, you know, in a sense, Whitewater was skating by a bit the way that uh, John Carroll and uh, Cortland State were earlier in this season. It's just that... The Warhawks were doing it at a higher level against the top-ranked team in the NAIA and a, a top-15 team in Division III. Now, on the other side, you know, Mountain Union has s- uh, shown no signs of vulnerability whatsoever this season. Thoughts about this being a wide-open season have to be tempered by that. Maybe this season is just open for teams in the central time zone and on west to get to Salem. But then again, even if Whitewater goes 9-1 and has to travel in the playoffs, they have had no issues winning playoff games on the road either, assuming they go 9-1. and I don't want to be the committee if an 8-2 and two Warhawks team is on the board.
2: A huge question for me, Pat, is whether this becomes like 2012 when the Warhawks were coming off a national championship and lost three games. At the time of their first upset back in 2012, we just thought it was one of those games um, You know that, that sort of happens from time to time, but it was actually the sign of an off year. So is this that? Have the results showed us that Kevin Bolus's Warhawks aren't the same old Warhawks you know that'll be intriguing to watch over the season's second half and possibly uh, if, if Whitewater makes it to the playoffs.
1: Uh, I tell you, Keith, this team certainly shares one thing in common with that 2012 team, and, and that's a lack of playmakers in the receiving core.
2: Yeah, well, we've mentioned that uh, more than once in, in the podcast, and, and you know but seriously, Pat, the, the Whitewater was just one of six top 25 teams to lose in week six, and I don't know if there were any that we didn't see coming. Whitewater's offense, you know, the, the one-dimensionalness of it had been a podcast topic of discussion, uh, and a lot of times they're very good at that one dimension, and not having the, the Jake Kumaro type player or the Tyler Huber on the outside is fine. They can survive without that. Um, but, but again, you know, a lot of these, I think we saw them coming. Whitewater's offense um, it wasn't exactly putting up monster numbers. Cortland State was playing with fire winning those games late at the end. We'd seen Wittenberg and Hobart get, get shut down already uh, earlier in the season by Wabash and Ithaca, respectively. And uh, Chicago was a surprise entry in the top 25 to begin with. So as surprising as it is to have six top 25 teams lose, I don't know if any individual loss was actually a surprise.
1: Keith, we're just two minutes into the podcast, and I feel like I have to throw a flag on you for encroachment. I'm the one who's supposed to make up words in this podcast, not you, Just just for the record.
2: I thought we went back and forth making up things. Not facts, of course, but but just
1: words. (laughs) Well, one-dimensionalness. i got to put that on the uh, bulletin board over here. Also, I have to put anything uh, from 2015 on this bulletin board because uh, I don't use the bulletin board anymore. I haven't gotten nearly enough material. Um, But, you know, back to your point, uh, it was a really good one. Uh, Rowan, similarly, even if we hadn't talked about the uh, profs on the podcast last week, there's certainly uh, plenty of reason to think that one of the NJAC contenders could knock off one of the others the way that uh, that league is pretty stacked at the top.
2: Yeah, I think that conference got a lot lot more interesting on Saturday with uh, with Salisbury beating Roa and with Kane winning. But, uh, you know, you add the, the six top 25 losses from Week 6 to the six top 25 teams that lost in Week 5, and it sure makes for a wide-open season. And that's completely a good thing. You want to have intrigue in the big conferences like the NJAC like the YAC like the CCIW, like the Empire 8. You want to have a national picture that's only halfway taking shape halfway through the season. But we said that in years past and still watch the purple sleighs ride into Salem in late December.
1: It, what's it, you know, I think we're uh, obviously we're, Several weeks away from Selection Sunday, a lot of games left to be played. Uh, we don't, as you said, we don't know what Whitewater really looks like. You know, they, uh, you know, do they go on and then lay an egg against somebody else? I mean, Stevens Point looks pretty decent this season. They could have a chance at knocking them off. One thing I can tell you, Keith, is this was certainly a, a big topic of discussion uh, both during the game and after the game, where I was, uh, I was at Linfield this past week, uh, where I thought I was going to see Linfield uh, play a competitive football game, and instead um, got to talk about and see how uh, fantastic Linfield was. We'll talk more about that a little bit later, but there was a a lot of uh, a lot of interest from uh, that part of Division Three as well, because, you know, obviously uh, Linfield and, and Whitewater have matched up quite a bit in the playoffs. Linfield had to play Oshkosh the year that Whitewater didn't make it. Um, and there's, a you know, an opportunity now that instead of that part of the country having to funnel through Whitewater, Wisconsin, they might have to funnel through McMinnville, Oregon, or also possibly St. Paul, Minnesota, or maybe even Waverly, Iowa.
2: Sure. I mean, the, the West is always sort of a, a meat grinder, for lack of a better term. You'll have sometimes... Uh, undefeated teams that that have to go on the road in the first round because there's so many good teams in the West, and um, the past several playoff committees have done a nice job of of using the the pod system to mix things up a little bit, so we don't you don't have all the West teams having to go through the West. You know, we've seen St. John Fisher have to go out to Minnesota and things like that. But you know, if you're talking about Linfield having a home field advantage, when it when it's certainly a, a very powerful Linfield team. Let's go back to that 2012 season, the last time uh, Oshkosh beat Whitewater. Oshkosh won the, the conference. They uh, moved on to the playoffs that season and actually went through McMinnville to get to the quarterfinals.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, the just as we talked about uh, Whitewater not having any qualms about going on the road, obviously Oshkosh uh, won a game on the road as well. And uh, you had a chance to win at St. Thomas, I think, if the quarterback was healthy. But, uh, you know, not to rehash... 2012, but it definitely is as much as uh, you said. Maybe as we said, maybe it's not wide open for anybody has to who has to route themselves through the Mount Union half of the bracket. Uh, it definitely seems like the other side. Uh, people have to have a little more hope right now, even though the the uh, the color purple hasn't necessarily gone away. There's the vulnerability that people have been hoping for.
2: Yeah, well, what would be interesting if there weren't a Mount Union half of the bracket? If if the bracket were sufficiently mixed up, where somehow Mountain Union had to go play uh, at Linfield, although I guess right now, since they're one and two in the poll, that wouldn't be very fair. But but um,
1: <laughs> but not impossible with the committee. We,
2: well, that's true. I think we just sometimes you want to see some uh, some more interesting matchups. You know, five years ago or, or you know eight years ago, it, it was important for the East. To, you know to balance the four brackets, it was important for the East teams to have to go through Mount Union. Now I, I think we've we've seen that and, and it's almost more important to to try to get the four strongest one seeds, even if the, the the four best teams are from Oregon, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Delaware or something like that. So or Texas. You know, you, you try to try to balance the bracket as much as possible. And what's interesting, of course, at, at this point in the season is so much of that is still up in the air. And, that, and that's good. That's that's fun to see. Um, Oshkosh, I believe, went to the, the semifinals last year. And I think I said uh, – not last year, uh, in 2012. And I think I said quarterfinals. And I want to correct that before we get too far afield. But I also don't think that's um, – based on what we've seen so far, I don't think that's an impossibility this
1: season. Yep. The, uh, the East could route itself through Dover, Delaware. That's certainly a, a very strong possibility and uh, who knows obviously we've got a uh, we've we've got a, a lot of football left to be played but not a ton of football left to be played we're past the halfway point 6 weeks down 5 weeks to go and selection sunday is is now looming uh, even more closely for those of uh, those of you who are uh, behind the eight ball in your conference races um uh, 6 p m eastern time on sunday november 15th is that the right date that's uh, that's when um you know, that yeah. will be the final uh, arbiter right there. Uh, and uh, obviously, like we said, lots more football to go and lots of, of, uh, of football to cover. But things just got a lot more interesting for November and December.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. And, and that's um, that's fun. You want to you know, there have been times when Whitewater's lost a game in the regular season. It certainly happens to them more often than it's happened to, uh, to Mount Union. Mount Union hasn't lost a regular season game since 2005. Whitewater's had to go on the road in the the postseason, as have Linfield and Mary Harden Baylor and Wesley and basically every other elite team except for Mount Union. Um, Mount Union's had uh, times when they haven't been the highest seed um, and they just, the things have shaken out where they haven't had to go on the road. But, you know, the more things are shaken up, um, the more interesting it is. And, And every time that's happened to Whitewater in the postseason, whether they've had to go, um, to 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 play at Wesley or um, to play in Minnesota or, or um, a, anywhere else we could we could pretty much stream up they've they've gone and done the job on the road uh, North Central I think in 2010 they had to go play there um, and, and those have been memorable games
1: the one thing that we haven't had is we haven't really had a uh, Mount Union Northwest Conference matchup. Uh, that was the subject of conversation a little bit at uh, Linfield on Saturday as well. But I'll, I'll send you to the website to see uh, the interview I did with uh, with Linfield coach Joe Smith. He had uh, some comments about that, also some nice things to say about uh, you know the the strength of the Wyak and, and talking about uh, West Coast Division Three football and that sort of thing. But go to the uh, go to the website for that. You can find it on our uh, Saturday Top Twenty Five Wrap Up. Let's move on and let's hit game balls. And for mine, I'm going to go with Brandon Lloyd of Wisconsin Oshkosh. He's the one who got the block of the field goal with 159 left, and that allowed the Titans to get the ball back and run out the clock. Obviously, you know, there's a couple other Titans who certainly could qualify for that conversation as well. about Jaden Esman, the backup quarterback who came off the bench and uh, finished that game? But, uh, you know, in the end, Lloyd's leap means we're talking about Whitewater losing rather than possibly pulling out another close game, which they've certainly done with late field goals at Oshkosh in the past.
2: Sure, and, and how about that whole uh, Wisconsin-Oshkosh defense? They held Whitewater to 71 yards rushing, which is unheard of given the success of the, the Whitewater run game over the years. For my game ball, I'm going to go to the other side of the spectrum and give it give it to uh, Dominic Bona, Colin Parks, Mike Zarnecki, Joe Mayone, and the Albion offense. The Britons had a hiccup last week, surviving a two-point conversion attempt at Hope to win 21-20 But they got that high-powered offense right back on track this week with a 72-40 win against Kalamazoo. The Britons rushed for 303 yards and passed for 352, and they're now the number two offense in the nation at 595 yards per game, one spot behind Wesley and one one spot ahead of Mount Union. So since they're hanging out with the big dogs, I want to read to you something from kickoff the Q&A interview that Greg Chandler did with Zarnacki. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not subscribing to our preseason preview every, every August, this is the kind of thing that you're missing. This is, uh, this is Greg asking, uh, asking Mike Zarnecki, when you dream about this season, how does it play out? Zarnecki says, I think we've got so much returning talent that it's possible to not lose a game this year and maybe get a home playoff game and avoid playing one of the top seeds. I don't think it's wishful thinking. If it's anything less, I'm going to be disappointed. Last year, we played at Stevens Point. It was a great game. This year, they have to come eight and a half hours to play on our turf under the lights. I think it's going to be a whole different atmosphere. Uh, now, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that it, it was a different atmosphere. Albion won that game in, uh, in week one, uh, scoring 65 points on, on Stevens Point. And that's a team that top 15 Platteville... Just beat by week three in, in week six. So Albion is now five and zero and halfway to Zarnecki's dream scenario, and that's why that offense gets my game ball.
1: That is one of the one of the key things if you're in the uh, if you're in the MIAA or in the uh, Heartland Conference, you know, trying to go ten and zero and avoid having to play Mount Union or or uh, possibly Wheaton or some other undefeated team from a power conference in the first round. And uh, Albion's on on the uh, on the prowl for doing just that.
2: Yeah, I was impressed that as a player he was aware of that because I feel like sometimes that's something that we talk about on the podcast and and coaches who've been around for years understand that. And I I wasn't sure if players really grasp that, but uh, but, uh, certainly Albion does.
1: It's a teams on the rise, and for me, I'm going to go with Salisbury. I, I think that the voters definitely had a battle as to how high to place the Seagulls, especially because they were not on many ballots last week. At, at a glance, actually, they were just on two of the 25. So Salisbury winning a, by a small margin at home suggests that uh, these teams, Salisbury and Rowan, are pretty evenly matched and the voters appeared pretty mixed as to whether the uh, whether the Seagulls should be above the props or not. To me, certainly defensible, something to debate, something to discuss. Uh, Albright didn't rise as much with Salisbury, but voters might be waiting on the, this week's game upcoming with Delaware Valley before deciding how good the Lions really are.
2: I do think that Salisbury's fortunes are tied to that Albright game. Remember, they led 23-3. to They gave up 21 points in the, in the fourth quarter and lost that game 24-23. At the time, that seemed like a shocker. In hindsight, the more Albright wins and then the more Salisbury wins, uh, you know, the more both of those teams can rise up the pole or at least sneak back into the bottom end of the top 25. For, for my riser, I have to go Wisconsin-Oshkosh, if only to th- to discuss the thought process of what to do with Oshkosh, Whitewater, and Platteville now. All three are 4-1, but only Oshkosh is 2-0 and oh in the WIAC. Platteville has the 17-7 loss to Whitewater from a couple weeks ago, and then Oshkosh beat Whitewater just 10-7. So at least until Oshkosh plays at Platteville in two weeks on October 24th, I think the results say that all these teams are pretty close and they can't be too far apart in the poll. I have them all between 5 and 11 on my ballot, and when the top 25 came out on Sunday night, the collective voters put them at 5, 6, and 13. Each of them has two strong opponents under its belt, so you can't just judge their one good game as a fluke. Now, Pat, what did you do with those three when it came to your ballot?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm a big believer in home field advantage being worth about three, three and a half points, and I still think that Whitewater has a chance to turn it around eventually. So for the moment, I'm one of the voters with uh, Whitewater ahead of Oshkosh, but now I am not afraid to move a team down if it isn't performing as ex- expected. Uh, last week, I'd already moved Whitewater down from two to three on my ballot behind Mountain Union, and this week, obviously, uh, Whitewater a few spots farther down. And and if they don't play, you know, if they don't play. Well, the next few weeks, even if they win games, I could still see flopping uh, Oshkosh and Whitewater. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty fluid with my ballot, and I try to reevaluate every week whenever possible. Uh, I have Platteville about five Scots behind uh, Oshkosh, and uh, as you mentioned, that head-to-head game coming up in a couple of weeks. Let's see, how about teams taking a fall? Obviously, uh, there was a bunch this week and a bunch of obvious ones. I'd like to talk about one of the changes that might draw questions from people, and that's Wartburg. Um, You know, certainly anyone in a certain area of the poll was going to drop one spot because they were going to get passed by Wisconsin Oshkosh. Uh, You know, nobody had a better week than Oshkosh, really. Uh, But you know, look at how Warburg's resume changed this week. Not based on Warburg's game with Coe, but some of it might go back actually to Warburg's game with Augsburg. Warburg beat Augsburg 35-27 at Wartburg back in the season opener. And on Saturday, St. Thomas beat Augsburg 55-6 on the road. You know, not play comparative scores or anything, but regardless, that's a bad comparison for Wartburg, even if you give Wartburg some credit for it being the first game of the season. You know, St. Thomas is still behind Wartburg by a few points, but that could change. And as you can see, always look at the point totals. Uh, Wheaton, St. Thomas, and Wartburg are all pretty bunched up. They're just 20 points apart in the ranking.
2: Pat, I think it was inevitable that, that some teams uh, were going to drop down a little bit with Oshkosh shooting up the poll and, and with voters having to reorganize how they have Oshkosh, Whitewater, and Platteville. And uh, I was proud of, of the, the group of 25 voters that we have on our, on our, um, our ballot or our poll um, because instead of just saying, well, Oshkosh won and you bump them up a few spots and you bump Whitewater down a few spots, it looked like everybody took their ballots reorganize them based on what we know now here in week six that Oshkosh is at least as good as uh, Whitewater based on what happened on the field and and a couple points better. And so they deserve to be higher than higher than them in the poll. So it it wasn't too much of a jump for them to come up from the teens, or I actually had Oshkosh at 20 and moved them up to to five, I believe. Um, But, you know, based based on what you know, you you reevaluate everything. And uh, I, I was just happy that the poll shook out that way.
1: Yeah. I would, you know, obviously, the coaches' poll hasn't come out by the time we do this. It'll come out shortly after our podcast drops on Monday morning. I'd be interested to see what the coaches do with that.
2: Yeah, because it, it takes um, maybe an extra level of thought or a little bit more work in your poll if you're really going to tear it down and reevaluate or just be open to moving teams up more than just a couple spots every time they win and just you move everybody. Who lost down a couple spots, and then and then you file your ballot. Uh, we try to do it a little differently than that, and uh, and and it seems to be uh, we seem to be not the only ones on on that line of thinking. You know that that seems like most of the top the twenty five voters are are thinking that way. Uh, as for the team that'll take a fall, I mean there were obvious ones who lost this week: Wittenberg, Hobart, Cortland State. I felt like those were too obvious. So aside from all those teams that lost. Framingham State actually is uh, the team that fell off the 25th spot on my ballot, largely because of who else won, but also because of Cortland State's loss. The Rams had basically played a one-score game with the Red Dragons a few weeks back, and the Red Dragons had climbed into the teens. So as Cortland rose, they pulled the Rams along with them. But with Cortland's loss to Buffalo State, the Red Dragons barely remain on my ballot, and there was no longer any room for Framingham State Rams.
1: All right. As I mentioned, I uh, took a trip out to McMinnville, Oregon this week to see Linfield play what I thought would be a competitive game against Pacific. Turned out not to be the case, but uh, I wanted to get a little more in-depth breakdown of the Wildcats this season. And I called on Ryan Carlson, and here's the conversation I had with him after the game. So I'm talking with Ryan Carlson, the former defensive end for uh, Linfield. You, you that you uh, had a look on your face like that's a long time ago now. It was, it was a very. It seems like
0: it gets further and further each year, which I, I suppose is yeah part of the deal. But yeah, a while ago for sure.
1: But still really connected to the program uh, on the sidelines every week as the uh, as the head videographer and uh, writing on your blog and, and that sort of thing. So uh, I'm I'm coming to you for the uh, the kind of X's and O's breakdown on on Linfield right now. Obviously, you know. Pacific didn't provide uh, much of a challenge. We didn't get to see the starters into the third quarter on uh, on Saturday afternoon, but... Uh, I think that uh, it, it sounds like Linfield did some things this week that they haven't done in the past few weeks. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh, what's kind of had a Linfield fan, not
0: not coaching or the players, but Linfield fan a little bit worried is the slow starts from the offense. That's something for the, for the first 3 games the offense has taken a little bit to get going and then they get going, the game gets blown out and the starters are out. So you haven't really seen Lin, the Linfield offense so far this year come out, start fast, put the pedal down, and, and look sharp. Today that changed. Um, today I think from from the first series they had the ball, the offense looked how everyone expected this offense to look, really crisp, both in the running attack and also Sam Riddle and the receivers. Um, I thought the offensive uh, play calling was really creative, mixed up, and uh, they kept the boxers off balance and offense looked sharp. And I think that's what Linfield fans have been waiting for before they put a tag of national championship contender on this team was that offense finally breaking through and today today they they looked sharp
1: I've seen a lot of I guess criticism is probably the word certainly some discussion about the style of the run game you know is it the uh, the uh, yeah. is uh, you know that sort of thing I didn't see any problem with the run game here
0: that's a bunch of baloney I, that, that's bugged me um you know the the running backs that both Tavon and and also Spencer Payne I think are tremendous running backs and would start for the great majority of D3 teams around the country um I haven't bought that at all those are the, the right guys and the guys behind those guys are the right guy the coaching staff knows better and uh those are are the guys so I've haven't worried about that at all I think it was just a matter of things finally clicking and maybe the coaching staff has held back a little bit the first three games a little bit too in terms of the competition i think they might have been saving some of their stuff for a little bit more formidable uh, foe
1: which they thought they were going to get today in pacific um and and they and they did not they won uh, 77 to 10 uh Sam Riddle, we've heard a lot of about him as a quarterback. It, I get to remind myself he's only a junior. He has yet another season after this one, but uh, he looked uh, he looked really impressive.
0: There's no doubt that Sam Riddle is the leader of this football team. Uh, I think that uh, when he was named the starter last year, there was no doubt that he was the guy, and that's held true. I think everyone had not only uh, respects Sam as a football player, but also as a person, too. Uh, they see him working hard as a father and also a husband and as a student. That's a lot of load to carry for, for a young man, and, and even though I know that may be hard for Sam, he doesn't show it. And uh, there's no doubt he's talented, he's tough, um, he's also one of the guys, too. He doesn't have an ego, um, he just loves to play football, and, and uh, he's the leader of this program, not a
1: doubt about it. Defensively, I always think of this group as the Alex Hoff show. Um, but uh, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, him and the rest of the guys up front, but then the other guys who I'm I'm not catching.
0: You know, Alex gets a lot of hype, but deservingly so. Uh, there's no doubt about it. He's probably one of the best defensive linemen in the country. And um, week after week, I watch him, and I just chuckle to myself when I see him just dominate uh, offensive linemen. You know, they send double teams at him, and it doesn't doesn't stop him, doesn't slow him down. He's a really talented guy. But surrounding Alex too, I think we have a fantastic secondary. Uh, we have an up-and-coming young linebacker core that's kind of uh, led by by a few seniors, but it's actually a pretty young uh, linebacker core but talented. And I think the rest of our defensive line, you know, we start – you know, we're pretty young at DT. Uh, we do have a couple older guys, but we're really young at defensive tackle, and that's something that was concerned at the beginning of the season. Even though they may make mistakes, they play hard, and I think as the season goes along, they'll show improvement. And uh, it's to me, I think the defense is better than what I thought it was going to be this year. I was a little nervous about some of the key personnel we lost from last season, um, but Coach Vaughn has them dialed
1: in. And you're definitely a national observer of Division Three football as well. So, how do you feel about where Linfield stacks up nationally, and then also, you know, how they stack up against some of the, you know, the great uh, Linfield teams of the past and the other national championship contenders? Oh my gosh, you know, that's such a hard question because I, I,
0: I know that I wear Linfield rose-colored glasses, and um, it's hard for me to judge. I've been having voting Linfield at number three. Uh, since the preseason poll behind uh, Whitewater as my number one, Mount Union as my number two, and Linfield as number three. And with uh, Whitewater dropping, I'm going to have to make the big decision of, you know, do I move Linfield up ahead of of Mount Union? Um, But I think I will. I think I'm going to, you know, go on record and say I'm going to put Cats currently as the best team in the country. And, you know, I've had the good fortune of going down and, and seeing teams like Mary Harden Baylor, seeing teams like St. Thomas, seeing, you know, Whitewater, unfortunately, year after year after year. And if this team continues to develop and if all three phases click, um, Linfield's a tough out. And I think that's uh, coming to here in the Cat Dome is going to be a, a tall task for, for teams around the country to come in and knock off, knock off this Linfield team. They're, it's a pretty talented roster.
2: Ryan brought up a, a super interesting question that I think all of us voters uh, had to sit down and deal with this week. Um, I, I hadn't been spending hardly any time on my top five. You know, I just you just kind of glance through and make sure that, uh, that that all of them looked impressive. And, and, and when it was Whitewater, Mount Union... Uh, Linfield, Mary Harden, Baylor, Wesley, they were all looking good. Either they're playing good teams and they're beating them or they're just dominating teams. They're supposed to dominate. Well, this week you really had to sit down and compare um who's going to jump up into that number one spot because when you look at this Linfield score, uh 10 and it's not against uh, uh, a nobody team. Pacific was uh had come come in with uh they they were just coming off a 34-7. Win over Pacific Lutheran, which um, PLU didn't have a great record this year, but you know, playoff caliber program most seasons, and um, they were they were three and one coming in, so you figure that's going to be a pretty good game. Linfield dominates them. Then you you look on the other side of the ledger. Mountain Union did the same thing to to Ohio Northern, which uh, was coming in off a pretty big victory over John Carroll, and Mountain Union basically beat them fifty one zero. Ohio and Northern sticks a touchdown in at the very end of the game to to, to ruin the shutout. But um, so a, as I put the two together, um, as I looked at Linfield and Mountain Union, I, I kind of had that same question. I just couldn't figure out anything that Linfield does that Mount Union doesn't do, and, and so I, I couldn't jump them ahead. Um, you know, the level of competition is pretty similar. The level of domination is pretty similar, and I think the the big question for both of those teams, as well as May, Harden, Baylor, and some of the other teams in the top ten, um, you know, as Ryan kind of reluctantly didn't want to quite declare his team, or at least not until he saw that game, didn't want to declare him a national championship contender. Well, for teams like that, they kind of start the season with that as their goal, or at least the playoffs are a goal. And it's got to be tough now to go through the, the next several weeks knowing that you um, can't assume a win. I mean, Linfield's lost regular season games uh, in recent years. So it's not like they're necessarily going to win every single game, but you know, they, they're, they're Willamette, Whitworth, George Fox, Puget Sound, Pacific Lutheran. Um, really Whitworth now is looking like the, the, the last test for them and they may roll into the playoffs. And so when a team starts to get that inkling that maybe they're, a a national championship or a national semifinal national quarterfinal kind of team, um, you know the best thing they can do, obviously, is stay focused week to week, try to dominate the team in front of them, and uh, and get better. You know Ryan, as good as Linfield is, Ryan, could, as someone who watches them every week, could point out uh, places where they're young, places where they need work, and uh, and that's true of every team, whether it's Mount Union, Mary Hardin Baylor, Linfield, or so forth, so on and so forth.
1: I've got, uh, I've got one final uh, order of business here in the, uh, in the Linfield realm. Um, so I thought over the course of this weekend, Sam Riddle as a quarterback needs a, uh, needs a nickname. So I jotted down a couple of possibilities. Uh, I want you to help me choose between them or uh, suggest something for yourself. So uh, here we go. Uh, one of them, uh, Sam Unsolvable Riddle. Uh, yeah,
2: that that was where my mind went too. Uh,
1: my second one is a "He who shall not be sacked." If you don't get that reference, your kids are not old enough to read Harry Potter books yet. I'm guessing.
2: Oh, Nate reads them, but uh, but but I don't. So he might get the joke, but I I didn't get it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, someone uh, someone tweet Keith and and fill him in. Um, do you have anything? Uh, you have anything better?
2: No, I would have went with unsolvable riddle. But really, since you were out there with a microphone. And uh, recording device to to interview Ryan Carlson, you should have just went around the stadium, the cat dome, especially if it's you know you're, you're in a seventy seven ten game. People have some free time to chat in the second half of games like that. That would have been a great question to to get the Linfield audience take on uh, on what Sam Reynolds' nickname should be.
1: Those who were still around after halftime, anyway, uh, especially uh, sitting through a bit of a rainy day and uh, a sixty seven point margin. Of victory. Yeah. Uh, Let's move on. Where are we in our uh, rundown here? We're going to be moving on to off the beaten path highlights. I'm going to stick in the Pacific Northwest though, as long as I'm on that beat this week. Uh, And let me touch on the other game that, uh, took place in the Portland area and give the young Lewis and Clark team some credit for not throwing it in and for coming back on the even younger George Fox team, even though Lewis and Clark ended up losing 49 35 George Fox clearly coming out on fire on its uh, homecoming Saturday, returning the opening kick to midfield, moving up on a personal foul penalty ended up uh, owning the first 22 minutes of the game, taking a 28 nothing lead that uh, extended to 35 nothing. But Pioneers ran the 2 minute drill pretty well. They scored before halftime and then they scored in their first drive of the 3rd quarter and made it respectable. But credit to George Fox though, now 3 and 2. Uh, and I drove up to the stadium and walked through it after leaving Linfield. That's a pretty nice place to play. Uh, I'm sure it was hopping on uh, homecoming. And, and those four schools Keith, you know, didn't really pay as much attention when we were out there before because, you know, George Fox didn't have football, Pacific didn't have football at the time, but they're practically on top of each other in the in that area south of Portland. Uh, Pacific's trip to Linfield is just 26 miles, and, and George Fox is just 16 miles from McMinnville. Meanwhile, George Fox is just 22 miles from uh, Lewis and Clark, and uh, Pacific, for whatever reason, is the only one of the four without a Linfield guy as head coach.
2: Although Keith Buckley's doing a pretty good job uh, with the boxers. And, and yeah, um, small college football in Oregon, if you're a player uh, growing up in that area, suddenly you have a, a couple more options uh, to, to continue your career. For me, uh, my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I'm going to go with the crazy double overtime scenario in Gambier, Ohio on Saturday. Ohio Wesleyan, which opened the season with a non-conference game against Mary Harden-Baylor, had a more manageable opponent opponent in Kenyon, but regulation still ended with the teams tied at 20 the Lords and Battling Bishops traded failed 35-yard field goal attempts in overtime, and Kenyon looked poised to take a touchdown lead with second and goal at the one, but Cameron Papa forced a Sam Apple fumble on a Wildcat formation play and recovered. The Kenyon defense wouldn't budge, though, and appeared ready to send it to a third overtime when Tim Shadoan, who didn't get to attempt his kick from 35 in the first overtime because of a mishandled snap, nailed the game winner from 43 yards out to give Ohio Wesleyan a double overtime win.
1: Surprising result. Let's see. I'm going to go with one that was a win. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Concordia Moorhead having to hang on to win 27-24 at Carleton. You look at that game, you think classic trap game? Yeah, not really. Cobbers have Augsburg and then Hamlin next. It certainly is a long trip, longest conference road trip in the Miic. but I have to wonder what's going through the Cobbers' minds as, as Carlton scores with 10.05 left, cut the deficit to 10, 27-17, then goes on an 80-yard drive to make it a three-point game with 3.50 left. Uh, the Cobbers did get two first downs after that to around the clock and escape, uh, but keep an eye on uh, Zach Creighton for Carlton because he, could did, he did all he could do for the Knights. Twenty-six to thirty-three passing for two hundred and sixty-six yards, and ran for another hundred and three yards on the ground.
2: I feel like every team on a, on the ballot gets one of those escape games. Like maybe we shouldn't have won, or maybe we almost got outplayed today, but we somehow find a way to win. And then when you when you start to get a, this deep in the season, where you have a body of work, where a team does that every week, whether it was John Carroll or Cortland State, you know it, it sort of portends a, a loss coming down the road because you can't do that every week, but. I like to give every every team at least one of those games where they you know they had to hang on to win. Uh, my most surprising result, aside from Wisconsin Oshkosh, the obvious choice, uh, I was surprised by Carthage, one and three coming in, beating Elmhurst, which was three and one coming in. Uh, Carthage outgained the Blue Jays four sixty four to two ninety one. What was even more surprising about it is that Elmhurst blocked a punt, recovered it for a touchdown the first three minutes of the game, and Josh Williams had his typical day. 26 carries, 132 yards at 5.1 yards per carry. But besides that, it was all Carthage. The Redmen only completed eight passes, but four backs got at least seven carries, led by Lafayette McGarry's 162 yards on just 10 runs. And the team rushed for 336 yards. It also knocked the Blue Jays out of the mix of teams that we might be able to to consider a challenger in the CCIW to Wheaton, North Central, and Illinois Wesleyan. Another huge surprise was Hobart. You know, the loss was one thing, but giving up 35 points to Springfield in the second half of the game was, was quite another.
1: Yeah, and with Springfield, you pretty much know what's coming, right? Uh, that's, uh, they've been running the same scheme there. And Mike DeLong, by the way, congratulations. I think we're a week uh, overdue on this, but uh, on 200 career wins. We should have mentioned that in last week's podcast. Um, that's not my stat of the week. Yeah. Mike DeLong, 201 career wins. Uh, this isn't precisely a stat from the box score, although it definitely is something that's listed in the box. Uh, this week Becker defeated SUNY Maritime 14, 13 and improved to three and two. This is the latest in the season. Becker's ever had a winning record and one win in the final five games. will give the Hawks a school record for victories in a season. You may remember the Week 2 win versus MIT got a lot of discussion, but having three wins uh, with a home game versus Gallaudet and a trip to Anna Maria, both those teams winless, still on the schedule, that's a big boost for a program that basically has never gotten off the ground. Uh, And if you're going to be a stickler for having to have an actual stat in here, I'll give props to defensive end Michael Calafiori, who had four tackles for loss in the win. Uh, SUNY Maritime runs the option, so there aren't a lot of sack opportunities against the privateers. Got to settle for tackles for loss. Yeah,
2: that's still a pretty good stat. Uh, for my stats of the week, of course I have two, but they're quick.
1: Of course. Uh,
2: how often do we see a team finish a football game with four points? Trinity of Connecticut beat Hamilton 29, four on Saturday and the Continental's points came on a safety and a block extra point returned 98 yards for two. Those four points are the only four the Bantams have allowed in three games this season. Remember the NESCAC starts a couple weeks later than everyone, everyone else. And they're not quite halfway through their eight game slates. So that puts Trinity next to Mountain Union at the top of uh, scoring defense, the national rankings. My other stat of the week goes to the Empire 8 and to Utica, which won in overtime for the second week in a row and played in an overtime game for the third straight week. It was the sixth Empire 8 overtime game in the past three weeks, and there's been at least one one one-score game by an Empire 8 team in each of the six weeks so far. The conference standings are as jumbled as ever, and while that makes this probably the nation's most competitive conference, sorry Odak it also means that they Empire 8, might only end up with one team in the playoff field
1: <laughs> sorry Odak yeah that's that's uh, that's probably true uh, let's see we're up to the time in the podcast where uh, traditionally we have to take our medicine we are uh, reviewing our triple take picks from Friday but uh, it was a great week for us on triple take let me tell you especially a great week for Keith uh, let me run down some of the uh, some of the stuff that you would have learned about us or from us a day before the games were even played. Uh, for example, all three game of the week predictions were uh, worthy. Uh, Salisbury knocked off Rowan by running out the clock on him. Uh, Oshkosh and Whitewater came down to the final minute. I don't know if you know what we might have mentioned that game. Uh, and Washington Lee beat Hampton City by getting a fourth and goal stop from the one with under 10 seconds left. Uh, let's see, all three of us picked a top 25 team to get upset, which is typically not particularly easy to do. Um, uh, let's see. Fair to say Chapman was able to breathe easily in the fourth quarter, leading by three scores for the last 10 minutes of the game. Ripon led by 20 plus the entire fourth quarter, but none of the teams, uh, did as well as Lebanon Valley, which just obliterated FDU Florham. Those were teams that, uh, we had said, uh, would be able to breathe easily in the uh, fourth quarter after, uh, challenging games the week before. Let's see, our teams that would uh have an advantage by playing at home, they all won. Although it was only Delaware Valley that won by the uh by the value of home field advantage or less. Ah, value of home field advantage getting a lot of play in this podcast. Yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. They scored a that touchdown with forty two seconds left to beat Stevenson eighteen fifteen.
2: Yeah, the only predictions really that that missed, and, and this is uh surprisingly successful week for us, and so we're gonna pat ourselves on the back a little bit. The only thing that, that we we didn't do right in, in triple take was Ryan and Pat um, failing to pick teams that changed their fortunes, which, if you think about it, required us to find a team that would perform counter to their season-long trend and expectations, and only I picked one of those with, uh, with Puget Sound coming back to earth against Whitworth.
1: See, that's what you did that I didn't do. I was trying to pick somebody who was gonna be uh, was gonna have a positive uh, counter to their season long trend and expectations I felt like I could have probably picked out three or four that would uh, that would have a downturn but I was trying to be nice and now I can't remember what any of those downturns would have been so
2: yeah I guess you're just a you're better man than me and, and Ryan because we were more than happy to, to pick teams that are doing well that we're gonna lose
1: well it's Minnesota what can I say Minnesota uh, nice. I am so good at lightning rounds. All right, lightning round time. Let's see. Hey Keith, our alma mater is faced off once again on Saturday, uh, and I get some bragging rights for the next year. Catholic defeated Randolph Macon 28-20. Uh, let's see. The good guys led 28-6 before Randolph Macon got back into it late, but uh, Catholic picked off the Yellow Jackets on one possession, and then uh, your guys ran out of time and ran out of downs in Cardinal territory at the end. Catholic three and two, one and one. In the Yodak Macon four, uh, Macon one and four, zero oh and two.
2: Yeah, they're not having a good season, but I still think you have confused who the good guys are supposed to be in that series. Uh,
1: I, uh, I'm not as confused as you are.
2: All right, sure, sure, sure. Uh, Southern Virginia, they threw for 184 yards this week. That's not a great number, but what makes it even worse is that it took them two games to do it. They threw for 95 yards in the Monday afternoon-slash-evening game against Wesley and 89 yards in the Saturday shutout against Montclair State.
1: Yeah, that's a tough week for uh, for Southern Virginia. You've got to go play, drive up to Delaware, play on Monday, come back home, play on Saturday. Not a lot of uh, positive uh, opportunities for or pop opportunities for positive outcomes there. Uh, let's see. How about, uh, let's see, in the WIAC, Wisconsin-Eau Claire is halfway to that 0-10 season we predicted them for in kickoff. Saturday, the Blue Goats lost at home to Wisconsin-River Falls, also known as the Wyack's basement team of the previous decade. Uh, last score of the game with f- came last score of the game came with 4:52 left in the second quarter and you do not want me to read off the drive chart of the second half i'll just mention that eau claire never got closer than the falcons 28 yard line and uh, river falls three and two two and oh in the league tied for first place in the Wyac.
2: well our liberty league uh posters and and folks on twitter are some of our favorites and we imagine that they're some of our best listeners on uh to the podcast as well. The Liberty League race is is really wide open after the Hobart loss, with St. Lawrence atop the standings at three and zero, and Rochester, RPI, Hobart, and Springfield all at two and one. So that finish in in these last five weeks here will be pretty interesting to watch unfold.
1: Let's see. Uh, a few weeks ago, Barry had no road wins in the history of the program, and now the Vikings have their second with a 24-17 overtime win at the University of Chicago. Uh, And I'm looking forward to another Vikings winning at Chicago. This one at Soldier Field on November 1st. The slightly more storied venue on the south side of Chicago.
2: Uh, On the eastern, southeastern side of Pennsylvania, we've got uh, Delaware Valley. That's a team that probably would have gotten some top 25 consideration this weekend uh, if it wasn't for that weird week two loss to Wilkes. Which, uh, which hasn't won since. Sean Miller had a 100-yard interception return for a touchdown, and Tyler Bing had the game-winning touchdown with uh, 42.9 seconds left in the 18-15 win against previously unbeaten Stevenson. That 12-7 to loss to Wilkes was uh, was back in Week 2, and it, like I said, probably the only thing keeping them out of the top 25 at this point. Quite a rebound, though, for the Aggies.
1: Yeah, that Mac race is going to be interesting as uh, things go on here. Uh, still some of those key games yet to be played. Uh, Funny thing happened to Wabash this week. Both of their biggest wins got devalued a little bit. Uh, First off, as we mentioned, Washington Lee won at uh, Hampton-Sydney 35-28. And secondly, DePauw beat Wittenberg 35-30. By the way, that's a huge win for DePauw. DePauw had played only one team in the top 200 and nobody in the top 170. This is in our preseason ranking before that game versus Wittenberg on Saturday.
2: And you had to do some research for that one to, to get in the top 170. But that's also a really strikingly bad group of teams to put your uh, unbeaten start up against. So 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 yeah. So seeing the Tigers beat the other Tigers in uh, in the North Coast is, uh, is is the first eye-opening win for DePaul this season. Uh, as far as the program, it got its first win last week, uh, first win in program history, and and we're just sort of assumed that they'd do it again against Presentation. Because that's uh, an XD three member and a program that's not very strong. Uh, Finlandia lost by thirty, so never mind what we said.
1: And that is your weekly Finlandia update, brought to you by the Hancock, Michigan Chamber of Commerce and Visitors Bureau.
2: Although not the last mention of Finlandia in the podcast.
1: <laughs> no, why? Why not? Why? If you got, if you're forty five minutes into the podcast, yes, you'll get a a second Finlandia reference bonus coming up in just a moment. Uh, but coming up next week. Uh, you remember Gustavus Adolphus? We talked about this extensively last year. They started off the season six and zero against um, uh, a couple of non-conference opponents, who are not very strong and not very strong conferences. And then the uh, the non the rest of the bottom half of the MIAC, uh, they started off six and zero and finished six and four. Well, Gustavus is six and zero just like they were last season, and they have the same four teams to end the season. I'm not going to have the order right, I don't think, but uh, basically they have uh, St. John's, which is who they have this week, and then they have uh, Concordia, Moorhead, and Bethel, and St. Thomas, and that's how uh, Gustavus finishes the season, running the gauntlet in the MIAC. But, of course, the highlight is... Uh, former Johnny quarterback, of course, once again uh, Mitch Hendricks, who is uh, playing St. John's, and uh, I know, I believe I may have talked about this on the podcast, but I've certainly talked about it elsewhere. Uh, that there were uh, there was more than one St. John's fan in that uh, tailgate before the St. Thomas game that really wished they might have had Mitch Hendricks suiting up at quarterback for them instead.
2: Well, yeah, the, the way you see him lighting up for the for the Gusties. You uh, you can only imagine what St. John's would look like if it had him and Sam Surra in the same backfield, and and um, you know those, those are those are the breaks. College football sometimes uh, things don't work out, guys transfer. But, but what's surprising to me was seeing Gustavus get so much mention uh, in the top twenty-five yeah. on uh, on Saturday. Mostly, I think because. Those of us who knew this, the, the 6-0, and 6-4 thing from last season, or, who, or at least still had it top of mind, kind of want to see them beat one of those Mayak big dogs. Doesn't matter which one, but it's got to be either St. John, St. Thomas, uh, Bethel, or Concordia Moorhead. You got to see them beat one of them before uh, before I give them top 25 consideration. They're certainly on the radar uh, with as well as they play.
1: Yeah, I don't remember where they ended up in the AFCA poll in terms of others receiving votes last week, or frankly for all i know they could have been ranked in that poll i really pay very little attention to it but that's the type of team that uh, could be in that poll on monday morning
2: no just because they're six and oh but yeah again you have to look at who that six and oh comes against uh
1: other games big games coming up uh next week um, Keith you know why don't you stop me when you've got uh, some of these that you want to break down in uh, more depth here we've got uh Saint Norbert at Ripon that's a big game in the uh it would be the northern division of the Midwest conference mm-hmm. um, and uh, Adrian at Albion you know uh, another one of those games that is going to help shake out that conference Hampton Sydney at Emory and Henry as the uh, odakiness continues or gets revved up or whatever you want to say coming up in week seven there.
2: Yeah, I think the intriguing one out of those three is uh, is Adrian, team known for its defense, and, uh, and and Albion, of course, we mentioned at the top of the podcast, scoring like mad. Um, so so that'll be one to watch, and, and if Albion stays undefeated, uh, that's team to, again, watch coming out of the MIAA, but also um, may end up getting a home game in the postseason. Uh, I think one that, that looks a lot better this week, than even that I thought it looked a week ago, Kane uh, and Wesley. You know, before Kane beat Christopher Newport 35-10, uh, I probably wouldn't have even, you know, paid a whole lot of attention to that game, but now the Cougars are surprising 4-1 and, and you want to see how they do against a program like Wesley before you start uh thinking about where they go from there.
1: Yeah, um Kane got onto my radar with they after they uh, went 4-0 and then they lost at Frostburg and so they kind of went back down and now they're right back up. That's a, that's a huge win for them. Uh, and Kane, that's a, that's a pretty good season for them so far, obviously with some gains left to go. Um, you know, this mismatch in the Northwest conference, uh, Pacific Lutheran against Whitworth, uh, six months ago, you might've considered it, uh, being a mismatch in the other direction, but instead we've got winless Pacific Lutheran and unbeaten Whitworth.
2: That's you took the words right out of my mouth. You would have, you would have figured, PiU is gonna gonna go out there and crush. And uh, it's actually a, a fairly long trip across state of Washington from Tacoma out to Spokane.
1: Yes, you are our uh, Washington state geographic expert on this podcast. That's for sure um gettysburg is a team i think they are in the afca poll uh they're one of the one of the 26 remaining unbeaten teams i had to go through and do that uh, counting in that math earlier on sunday after the top 25 poll came out uh they host Muhlenberg. Muhlenberg is three and two but this is not the mismatch i think that the uh, records would suggest
2: yeah i mean muhlenberg has been been top of the centennial conference right alongside johns hopkins uh, for several years now, and, and uh, they, they had a couple tough losses early. But that's a game where, yeah, from afar, you just look at the records and, and maybe don't pay attention to it. But if you follow the Centennial, uh, that should be a pretty big one. And, Pat, just to highlight the number that you pointed out, this is why, you know, just because your team's undefeated, it can't doesn't necessarily mean it belongs in the top 25. You said there are 26 teams... Uh, that are unbeaten, and there are only 25 spots in the top 25.
1: Yeah, literally you cannot have all the unbeaten teams in the top 25, and that's before you even think about teams that might have beaten another top 25 team or lost to one and still deserve to be ranked. Uh, Trinity Texas comes off its bye week. They have the first of their two games, their home-and-home series against Austin College. And, and, you know, Keith, the SCAC is going to go full double round robin in football coming up.
2: Well, you, you can't blame them. They sort of got the short end of the stick when the SAA schools left, and there there are full, four schools in the conference. They're not somewhere where you can just pick up a bunch of games from the conference next door. Uh, there are some options um, in Texas, but there certainly aren't as many as, say, if you were in Massachusetts and you could play every school in New England plus schools in New York and North Jersey you know, within a two- or three-hour drive. So uh, it, it's, it's a uh, different um, – it's a different, I guess, scheduling thing they're dealing with. It's a quirk. We saw the Wyack do it a few years ago, and nobody really liked it um, when, when the Wyack had to do it. And uh, they, they finally uh, finally got rid of it. But for Trinity and Austin, it's their deal. Uh, how about the deal in the Empire 8? Well, the whole rest of the conference is beating each other up. we got Alfred at Cortland State next weekend, Utica at St. John Fisher, which looks surprisingly good on Saturday after a rough start, Brockport State at Ithaca, Morrisville State at Hartwick. While all those teams are beating up on each other, Buffalo State gets a visit from Finlandia.
1: We'll let the final word of the podcast be Finlandia. This was uh, Around the Nation podcast number 137 for the week of October 12th, 2015. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in the iTunes store or in your podcast uh, regime. That'll help other football fans and other Division Three football fans find it. So, thanks for following Division Three football on d3football.com.